You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Yeah, how about that? Right there. Great to be with you all today. Thank you so much. There's uh, been so much going on at our south location uh, up at our uh, at Fort Worth with Pastor Alvin is getting going there and getting settled in and reaching out to the community. So we're excited that you're here and to be here with all of you online and in the room. We are in a series looking at the gospel of Luke. As you can see, the theme of reversal. But in Luke's day, it wasn't called a gospel, of course. It was just known as an historical account of the life of someone named Jesus of Nazareth. And Luke in his day wasn't writing the Bible because in his day there was no the Bible. That wouldn't come for about 300 years. Luke wasn't writing a story, not in the way we think of stories. Luke wasn't writing his account to make money. I mean, there was no New York Times bestseller list, right? Luke wasn't writing this to gain power because everyone who lived for Jesus in his day was either executed or persecuted or both. Luke wasn't trying to get you to have faith for faith's sake. No, Luke wrote not believing that something would happen, but he wrote because someone and something did happen. And that someone was Jesus. That's why Luke's account was written, and that's why we are here. Because the center, after all, of the Christian faith, if no one's ever told you, the center is not a building. The center of the Christian faith is not a book as important as that book is. It's so important, but we're not here because someone wrote a book. No, what's at the center of it all is a person, and in specific, one event that happened to that one person roughly 2,000 years ago. One person, Jesus of Nazareth, and one event, the resurrection, are why we are here. And if he did not live and that event did not happen, All of this is a lie and a crock. We're just like some nice support group. We're all duped and deceived. And like one early Christian writer put it, if the resurrection did not happen, we are to be pitied above all people. So if you're here today and you're new and you're coming with questions, it's great. Or or someone maybe is starting to ask you some questions like a friend or a a parent or a professor or a teacher about faith that you don't know the answers to and maybe you're starting to question some stuff now and you're struggling. Or maybe if you're really honest, you've kind of stopped even thinking or asking questions. You've got like one foot out the door, like one handle on the doorknob on the way out in your heart. Just allow me, allow me to encourage you to ask this single question today we've been asking in this series over and over, and it's the question that the writer of this account, Luke, pushes us to ask, and it's this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Over and over, he seeks us to try to ask and answer that question. So who is he? Well, today we're going to see as we move into Luke chapter 9 that Jesus is the one who calls you to follow him. He's the one who calls you to follow him. Now, have you ever thought about that? I mean, come on, that Jesus Christ actually has, here's the word, the gall to ask you to follow him. I mean, that's, I think that's kind of odd. I think that's kind of unusual, even strange. I mean, how many people do you know who look you right in the eye and say, follow me? What does that even mean? I mean, what does it mean to follow? Because in English, to follow can mean a lot of things, after all. You can follow directions to get to Starbucks or Krispy Kreme. You can follow through on something. You can 
follow a sports team. You can follow your bliss. That's kind of weird. Uh, you can follow someone on Twitter, even if you don't even really know them. Follow means a lot of stuff. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? From Luke chapter 9, we're going to see three things today. That to follow Jesus means, first, we reject an old psyche. It means we receive a new priority. And finally, we respond to a new presence. Receive a new priority, respond to, or sorry, whatever it says on the screen, respond to a new priority and receive a new presence. That's right. They got it right. I don't. Thank you very much. Reject something, respond to something, and finally receive something. Let's begin here number one. We're talking about what it means to reject an old psyche. What's this coming from? Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says famously, if anyone, would you say that word with me? Say anyone. Wishes to come after me, he must. Would you say that word? Must. Yeah. Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow. Would you say the word follow? Follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So let's start here by looking at the one word Jesus uses more than any in this little passage. It's our English word, life. But there's way more going on here than what may meet the eye because the word life doesn't mean physical life. And we know this because Jesus didn't use the word for that. That would have been the Greek word bios, where, of course, we get our word biology. Jesus doesn't use the word bios. He literally uses the word suke in the Greek, where we get our word psyche, which really means, of course, the soul. The soul. In other words, he's not talking primarily here about dying to your physical life in order to follow him, although that might happen. He's talking about dying to anything else that you have made the center of your life besides him. He's saying to follow me, you've got to get a whole new kind of self, a whole new kind of psyche, a whole new basis for your existence, and that basis is following me. Following me is your identity now, if you want to relate to me. Now, this is remarkable. And again, if Jesus Christ is not God, I would not advise doing this. I wouldn't advise listening to him. But it does kind of beg the question, again, who talks like this? Because what if he is God? Maybe if he is God, doesn't he kind of have the right to talk like this? To ask us this kind of question? So Jesus is out to reshape our very basis for what gives us meaning, what makes us us. And he's telling us, as we deny the very way Anyway, the world tries to tell us to get a sense of self using our job, our money, our looks as a means of being something. As we reject that and say yes to him, we're molded into someone new. So, okay, how does that happen? How does he work this new sense of self into us? And the answer to that question is, well, that's kind of where the trouble starts. <laughs> Look at this verse. Some eight days after these sayings, he took Peter, James, and John and went up on the mountain to pray. 
Now this is super important to catch because unlike the rest of Luke, which doesn't really give us a time stamp as far as when Jesus taught stuff, this verse is super specific. It says how long? Eight days later. Why? All the commentators will tell you what Jesus here is doing is a direct result of what he was saying. In other words, he tells us, I want to work in your life, a whole new sense of self, and now I'm going to show you how to get it, and how's he going to do it? Oh, he is going to call you, like he called these, to follow him with other people. Uh-oh. Jesus is modeling the heart of Christian discipleship, which is simply following him with other people. Now, of course, many of us would say, yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Some of us would say, I even want him to change me. We sing songs, change me, O Lord. Refiner's fire, purify me. You know, stuff like that. Dangerous, by the way, to say and sing. But what Jesus does here to Peter, James, and John is the thing, let's just be honest, that many of us fear the most. And with good reason. He calls us to go up with him on the mountain with the people he chooses for us. By the way, you'll notice again the gall of Jesus. He didn't ask what Enneagram number they were right here. Can you imagine? He didn't ask him to take like an introvert, extrovert thing. Like if you're introverted, it's okay, James. You can stay home and podcast it right now. He didn't ask him to get out there, strengths find a result. Oh, you're light on relational building themes. Well, then maybe you can just go home and listen to some tapes or something or CDs or whatever the kids are listening to now. No, he said, you follow me with them. I want to work something into your life. All right. Uh, uh, many years ago in a galaxy far, far away, I was a college baseball player and I had a strength and conditioning coach named Lou Hernandez. Lou Hernandez was a five foot five, and that's being generous, Hispanic male from the Rio Grande Valley, Alice, Texas, Alice Coyotes. Any Alice Coyotes in the room today? Got an Alice Coyote. Come on, Alice Coyote. Yeah, there you go. And Lou came in one size only, extra swole. That's what we used to say. If Swole was the goal, and size was the prize. Lou got both of them. His pectoral muscles famously were so large, he couldn't touch his elbows together. We said, Lou, touch your elbows. You know, couldn't do it. <laughs> we asked him, hey, touch your, you know, touch your finger to your, your shoulder. His biceps were so large and his arms so short that when he flexed, the muscle would go up and the arm would get stuck. Right there, this is all true. And Lou, of course, he had one goal in mind as a strength conditioning coach, which was to make us great through pain. <laughs> See, the beauty of a strength coach in college is this. They don't give you your scholarship. They don't recruit you. They can't let you go. They don't deal with parents. They don't really care what your grades are. They don't care if you're the biggest blue chip guy or the most walked on freshman underrepresented guy ever. No, they're there to make you great. And Lou was amazing, although this meant at times we hated his guts. <laughs> because when he was nice and he made us throw up less and pass out less, this is true, we called him Sweet Lou. Yes. When he pushed us to our breaking point and often passed it, we called him Lou Suffer. <laughs> it's true. But either way, he was an agent of change. In our lives, he was a discipleship agent, if you will. He changed how we thought about ourselves. He showed us we were capable of way more than we thought. And in that sense, he changed, can you see, 
our sense of self. And when I became a Christian, God did something similar, except even better. He put a spiritual leader in my life. His name was Leo. And Leo was, how shall I put it? Again, not the swaggiest G I had ever met. That was for you, Roman Perez right there. But <laughs> Leo knew nothing about baseball. But man, he knew a lot about how to mold people spiritually. He went over my life with a fine-tooth comb. Morgan, how you doing with girls? Are you reading your Bible, Morgan? Why did you leave early from the campus meeting last night, Morgan? Why did you didn't stay to, you know, stay to help to tear down the chairs, Morgan? If you're too big to tear down the chairs, you're too small to lead, Morgan. Oh, wow, yeah. You know what he's doing, of course. He's molding, shaping, laying foundations, teaching me to pray, how to defeat sin, how to forgive. He's shaping a new sense of self, and he did it all. Rocking the 90s mullet. Big blue blocker sunglasses. Chunky, funky, not cool, white high tops. He was nothing like me. That was exactly what I needed. I didn't need more people exactly like me. More arrogant, undisciplined 20-year-olds. I needed sandpaper. Some grinding. Someone to stay on me. Listen, you need a Lou. You need a Leo. You need Jesus' super inconvenient plan of community, discipleship, to work in a whole new sense of self, one based on following Jesus first. And I want to tell you, if you'll do that, if you'll take a risk, yeah, even with people here today, I know many of you, some of you are new, if you'll follow him with others, if you go past the limits of potential offense and real hurts and misunderstanding and the lie of the enemy that says that no one understands you, that you're overlooked, no one knows what it's like to be you. They just don't get it. If you go past all that, like Peter and James and John did, if you go up the mountain with one another following Jesus, you will also get what you need to comfort you in your trial, what you, you'll need to strengthen in yourself and your weakness to speak to you in your doubt and to empower you in a way you never thought possible. You will get what these men got. We'll look at it before we're done, which was an unforgettable, life-changing moment on a mountain they drew strength from for years to come. But if they said, no, Jesus, I just want to go with you, and not those rascals next to me in the pews or the comfy blue seats. (laughs) If they stumbled at Jesus's choice of people in their lives, they never would have gotten the kind of self that can change the world. We get a new psyche, a new identity worked into us as we follow Jesus with other people. Number two, number two, we don't just reject something though, we also We also respond now to something. We respond to a new priority. Let's try to find it, see what it is here. Some of you are saying, finally, number two, all right. Verse 57, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now let's just pause here and acknowledge, if Jesus were a pastor trying to grow a church, he's doing a real bad job of it here. What's that, you wanna come inside? Nowhere for you to sit, (laughs) right? No bathrooms. This isn't what you say to people who wanna join your deal. No, you roll out the red carpet for them. You make sure their children have nice places and classrooms to learn in. You give them free chai. 
in the lobby. You sure don't say anything offensive in the message that might may make him want to go someplace else. Why is Jesus saying this? Doesn't he realize if he says stuff like this, this guy may not join his church. Here's why he's saying it. He's saying this to make sure we all get one thing straight. We don't offer him the chance to be a part of our lives. He offers us the chance to be a part of his. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German World War II Lutheran pastor and ultimate martyr, put it in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He put it like this. He says, discipleship is not an offer that man makes to Christ. Now, because we live in a 21st century Western culture, which is consumer driven, like everything begins and ends with us, we especially need, I think, to have our definition of discipleship adjusted because discipleship is not, hear me, an emotionally driven concept of just liking Jesus, but it's a principle-based commitment to following him. And what's the principle? Simple. Following Jesus is your priority, no matter the cost. Following Jesus is a priority. Again, Bonhoeffer tells us what Jesus means here when he responds to this man. He says, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. You say, Morgan, that's a bit harsh. Isn't Bonhoeffer kind of overstating it? I'd say, if anything, he's kind of understating it. Because look at the text here. Come on. This person comes up to offers to follow Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Even the animals have a home, but I don't, right? Means following me may mean you have to surrender all your material possessions. Following me means you're not here primarily for the miracles or the teaching or the songs or the emotion, though you may get all that, I hope you do. But he's saying following me means you get me. In a moment, Jesus pulls the plug on this man. I think, I think this man thought he was, he was making Jesus like a real big time offer here. I'm going to be a part of your thing, Jesus, right? He's doing the equivalent, kind of like tagging Jesus, I think, on Instagram. Like, hey, Jesus, saw you at ACL last night. <laughs> Heard you on a stage, real good speech you gave. I'd like to join your deal. You know what Jesus says, I think, would think, say to him, I see you, music lover 9941, you know, cool. I hear you. I'll take everything you have. Discipleship isn't an offer we make to Jesus. It's an offer he makes to us. And that offer, we're going to see just a second, it's way more personal than we would like. We'd like to say, we want a personal God, right? Spirituality is personal. I'm a you know, personally spiritual person. I want to tell you, Jesus gets super personal with us right here. Look what happens next to these two brief encounters. Jesus now calls out to a man, follow me. What does the man say? Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And of course, Jesus gives him this famously cryptic response. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I think this man might have been thinking, okay, cool. Jesus doesn't want me to think about my past. He's future facing. I can get with that, right? Maybe he thinks that Jesus was saying, you know, like, you see dead people. Don't do that anymore. 
So, okay, I'll, I'll just leave them alone and focus on my living parent. But just to show you, you have no idea what Jesus is going to say to you next. The next guy on the road pipes up and says, Lord, okay, fine. I don't want to mess with my dead parent in order to follow you. I just want to go say goodbye to my living parent and then follow you. And what does Jesus say to him? He said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. What's going on? What's going on is this. Luke is showing us the intensely personalized nature of Christian discipleship in our lives. What do I mean? I mean this. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to bury your dead father. Not at all. Nor is he saying it's wrong to talk to your living father. He's just saying it's wrong for that person at that moment. Why? Well, we get a hint from both men. What do both men say in response to Jesus' call to follow? They both say, yes, but first. Yes, but first. Let me ask you. Do you have a yes, but first? Yes, Jesus, but first, career. Yes, Jesus, but first, grad school. Yes, Jesus, but first, this relationship, that person, marriage, sports with my kids. Yes, Jesus, but first. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this, this is just, it's, it's just, what's the word? Destabilizing, right? <laughs> this is why Jesus responds the way he does. It's not wrong for them. It's wrong for you. He's unequivocally, without your permission or mine, diving into every nook and cranny from what's holding you back from him. All right, it's tough. The last guy, though, I feel for him the most because I think he was thinking, I dodged a bullet. Those other two yahoos, they got what was coming to them, right? The first guy clearly wasn't serious. The second guy wanted to go bury his father. Like, that took weeks, right? I'm just going to go and ask to say goodbye to my dad. What can be wrong with that? What does Jesus say? You're not fit for my kingdom. Now, at this point, you're like, man, we've had enough. <laughs> Let me just pause and say, I don't like talking about this. I don't like teaching about this, but I'm afraid to mute the intensity of what Jesus is, I think, trying to get across here. I mean, look what he says to the very people who are trying to follow him. Let the dead bury their dead. I've got no place to lay my head. You might not either. No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for me. You may be saying, Morgan, though, this feels heavy. This feels like a yoke. Hey, what about that scripture where Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden's light. Come and I'll give you rest. You're like, okay. To which again, one more time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would say this. Only the man or woman who follows the command of Jesus single-mindedly and unresistingly lets his yoke rest upon him finds the burden easy, and under its gentle pressure, receives the power to persevere in the right way. The command of Jesus is hard, unutterably hard, for those who try to resist it. But for those who willingly submit, the yoke is easy, and the burden is light. Anything less isn't discipleship. Where then can we get the power to allow him to change us and receive this new priority as we follow him? Number three, we need to receive a new presence. Receive a new presence in our lives. Let's see where we get this presence from. Okay. Here in Luke 9, 
Jesus takes these three men up on a mountain, his followers, and this is what happens next. It says, and while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different, and his clothing became white and flashed like lightning. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is the climax of the first nine chapters of the book before a turn to the remainder. And this is, I think, perhaps the ultimate pointer to who the person of Christ really is. Because here, come on, catch the imagery. There's a mountain, lightning, clouds, the voice of God, and glory. Does it sound a little familiar? It should. This is a recapitulation of Moses in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. The children of Israel in Exodus had come out of slavery. They were led in that day by what was called the glory cloud. And the glory cloud was the physical manifestation of the presence of God on earth. And it led the Israelites, protected the Israelites, came down on the mountain when Moses went up to meet with God. Moses went up and met with God. And as the cloud came down on him, he came down the mountain with a shining radiant face. It was the ultimate sign of the transcendence of God. But you'll notice there's a twist here. When Moses went up, his face shone as the glory came down. He was kind of like a moon, a satellite that reflects light. But here, as Jesus prays, the glory doesn't come down. The glory comes out. It comes out as he's praying. He doesn't receive light on his face. His face becomes the light itself, the lightning. Read the text. Is it coming from the sky? The lightning is coming from his clothes. Lightning is shooting out from his person for a moment. He's like leaking glory out of his earth suit. This means two things in case it wasn't clear before. First, Jesus was and is a supernatural being. Born supernaturally of a virgin. Lived a supernatural life. Ultimately raised from the dead supernaturally. And this supernatural source is the power and the real source of all true Christian life and the true Christian church. See, the, the, this faith at its core is a supernatural faith. It's just not nice moral teachings or truth, although sure, it's those things. No, it's bathed in the supernatural. And to remove that element is to unplug all of this from the power source. And second, it means Jesus is not just another teacher. No, he's the one. All true teachers should want to talk about. He's not just another prophet. He's the one all true prophets ought to point to. This isn't just like a sign of the glory of God like in the Hebrew scriptures. Or something that points to the glory of God like mountains or the beach or the stars. No. What we're being shown here, you've got to catch this, is fundamentally different. He is the supernatural final revelation of the person of God and lightning and power and glory are streaming from him and then it says Moses and Elijah appear there representing the law and the prophets from the Old Testament. What happens next? What do the disciples do? What does Jesus's small group do in the moment? It says while he was saying this, talking with them, the cloud formed and began to overshadow them. They were afraid as they entered the cloud. I'll bet they were. Why? 
Because every place in the Hebrew scriptures where the glory cloud appears, it's lethal for humans. Even the cattle couldn't touch it. This was supposed to illustrate the gap between human and the divine. And by the way, people for centuries have understood this across time and cultures. We've always understood. If you want to get to God or the divine, you needed a way across to be accepted. Every culture has produced temples or, or, or rituals or transformations of consciousness or something that was put in place that would attempt to cross the chasm between humanity and the divine. But it's only we now, we modern Western people, who struggle with this. We think that stuff is bunk because we think it ought to be just easy to connect with God whenever I want, right? Like, he ought to answer my prayer on my timetable for whatever I ask for, and if he doesn't, then I'm out. Listen, it's not the people from the past, I think, who missed it. I think we more miss it. And Peter and James and John, they're coming undone because they know what the cloud means. It means their lives are over, but then something amazing happens, or we should say something amazing doesn't happen. They don't die. They live. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God said, no one can see my face and live. But here, they see the face of God in Jesus. They see God's glory and they live. They weren't perfect, and yet they were nearer to the glory of God than any other humans had ever been in history, and they lived how? It's because Jesus was perfect for them. This transfiguration here shows us that the founder of Christianity, the center of all of this, has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We could never make ourselves perfect enough. So we have to say, thank God for that. Right? We can never alter our consciousness enough, get in touch with the divine current of the cosmos. We can never sacrifice enough. And how did Jesus make the crossing, the chasm, possible for us? Verse 31 tells us what it was going to take. It says, Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, we don't get it in English, but here this word departure appears, and literally in the Greek, you know the word it is? Exodus. It's the word exodus. Isn't this ironic? Don't you think? Some of you are like, yes, I was waiting for that. A little too ironic. Here you have Moses, the leader of the first exodus, speaking with Jesus, who's about to become the greater liberator of people and the greater exodus himself through becoming the Passover lamb himself so that the spirit and presence of God could now come into our lives. So why should you follow him because of this moment here? At the moment of Jesus' greatest glory on earth, here he is thinking about what it's going to take to rescue you. Come on, what kind of like superstar, leader elected, athlete who wins the championship thinks about dying for people at the moment they're at the top? The greatest being in the history of the world is on top of the mountain, glory leaking out from him. And he's thinking about his exodus, the price he's going to pay to redeem our hearts. And he did it, didn't he? Yeah. He would go to the cross and he would hang and he would bleed and he would die to bring you back to his heart. And he was resurrected, that you and I could be born again and receive the glory of God in our lives. Hear me. Jesus Christ never asks you to walk a path he hasn't already walked first. 
Why wouldn't you want to follow someone like that? He's already made you his priority. Now we can make him ours. Hope you can say amen to this challenging, challenging, but true, I think, word. Let me just take a moment and pray for us as we begin to close. Father God, we come in Jesus' name and we give you glory for your words. And Lord, I pray that above all, this would be received spirit in which it's intended or to communicate the weight and yes the opportunity that's there to become like you follow you be close to you we thank you for thinking about and then living out your own exodus how you were sacrificed for us to set us free from our past from sin from bitterness from an old sense of self Lord, I pray today, if we haven't before, we would say yes to your offer to follow. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.